welcome to Cinematicon Ex Mortis, the horror movie discussion podcast hosted by Kenny and Heather. And today we are looking at The Shining from 1980. This is, I guess, our Thanksgiving episode. It's so, you know, it's all about family and... Sure, know. yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> it's um, a nice family film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's set in the winter, in the holiday season. Right. Yeah, it was going to be our Halloween episode, but uh, here we are. It's <laughs> we November. Did, we did our best. Yeah. Uh, and also, it's uh, well-timed because uh, the sequel has just come out, Doctor That's Sleep. That's right. Have you seen it so, yet? No, I haven't. I'm thinking about it, though. It's getting okay reviews. I want to see it. I didn't read the book, so I feel a little bit like a fraud, but... I'm, mm. I I don't have time to do that now, so yeah, got to go see the movie first. You mean the book Doctor Sleep? Yes. Ah, yeah, I have not read that, but I have read the novel of The Shining. I am very well aware of that. You actually made me read it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's cool. So we both read it. Yes, I did read it. I I loved it. Okay. So thanks for um, forcing me to do that. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I guess it's not surprising that I've completely forgotten that episode in my life. Well, we got that out of the way this episode, because that happens every single episode of this show, where I'll be like, remember this? Mm-hmm. And you're like, no. Yeah, record time. Mm-hmm. So We haven't even gotten to the basic facts about the movie. go ahead and check that off now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, The Shining was released in 1980. It was produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick who also co-wrote the screenplay with Diane Johnson, based on the 1977 novel of the same title by Stephen King, which we have both read. The film stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Scatman Crothers, and features original music by Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind, along with a number of classical pieces. So, uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to do the plot summary now, and if you haven't seen The Shining, you should definitely check it out. Although, I guess this is one of the less spoilable movies. Like, it's not really about plot twists and stuff the way that Psycho and some other films are. I mean, it has a pretty cool little twist at the end. Yes, and we will discuss that. Um, But, uh, okay, here's the plot summary. (laughs) Jack Torrance, a writer struggling to complete a project gets a job as the winter caretaker for the Overlook Hotel, a resort high in the Colorado Rockies that has to close for months every year due to the roads being covered with snow. He brings along his wife Wendy and son Danny. As they tour the premises on closing day, the hotel's head cook, Dick Halloran, notices that Danny has ESP, an ability Halloran refers to as shining. Halloran warns Danny that, for someone with this ability, the Overlook can be a frightening place, since a lot of things has happened here over the years, and not all of them was good. Someone who shines can become aware of the psychic remnants of violent events from the past, and the Overlook, which was built on an Indian burial ground and whose previous caretaker chopped up his wife and children with an axe, has plenty of these to share with Danny. Over the course of the winter, as Jack succumbs to his inner demons and the supernatural forces of the hotel menace Danny, things go from bad to worse. Ultimately, Wendy and Danny will have to escape from the snowbound overlook or become its permanent residence. 
Okay. So, I guess I'll start with the, you know, just how you felt about the film in general. You've seen it, what, is this your second time? Yeah. Um, you and I have definitely watched it together. Mm -hmm. I feel like you and I have watched it together more than once. That's actually. possible. I've seen this one a lot. Um, I haven't seen it in many years, though, so it is almost like seeing it again for, you know, like, it's like seeing it for the first time because it's probably been, you probably were the last person I watched it with, probably, mm -hmm. which, you know, had to be like 12 years ago, at least. So, um, it, it's very much a fresh experience. Yeah, I really, I like it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, what 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 do you like about it? Um It's not that scary to me. So, I like that. <laughs> I like that it's not like super traumatizing. Um a lot of times when movies are too scary, I can't like enjoy them at all because I'm just constantly so worried. Um so I like that I can enjoy it without having to like close my eyes or whatever mm. um but it's still spooky enough that it's you know it has that effect yeah so i like the balance i find that this for me goes in a, a kind of special category of horror films that are actually less scary while you're watching it and they're more scary if you think about it afterward like because of the situation like um that's how i feel about the sorry sorry he's gonna that's a do that for a second the pool killer filter. topiary animals over there <laughs> the pool filter came on so he has to make sure that it knows that he will fuck it up if it mm. continues to do that except this happens every day so. i see right so like with the blair witch project uh that one I didn't really find it scary while I was watching it, but then later it, it ended up like uh, keeping me up at night when I started thinking about, well, what would I do if I were out in the woods uh, and got lost and started hearing scary noises? Like that scenario is easy to put yourself in and it's really freaky. Uh, and I feel the same way about the overlook, like the idea of being in a hotel that should be empty and there's these long hallways with all of these doors to the different rooms mm -hmm. and there shouldn't be anyone in any of those doors but how do you know for sure and what happens if you turn the corner and one of those doors is open a crack you know it's like oh that's there's something so unnerving about that that yeah situation i hate it I the Blair Witch Project like really traumatized me, so they don't go mm. in the same category for me at all. Yeah, but that you know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some things are scary to think about. Totally. And like you know what I was thinking about last night was, as I was trying to fall asleep, I started thinking about Lake Mungo, and I was like, mm. Ugh, I wish <laughs> that wasn't happening right now. Like, why did I have to think about that? So yeah, totally. Well, what have you seen from Kubrick other than The Shining? Uh, what what else has he done? 
Well, I know we watched Lolita. You got obsessed with that one. <laughs> Don't expose me like that. I'm going to get canceled again. <laughs> okay, so there you go. Again, isn't the whole idea of getting canceled that it's final? Mm, I think that's what they intend, but I've been can I get canceled like once a week. So <laughs> I can't afford it, it again stick. this week. No. Hmm. Um yeah, so you've definitely seen that. You've mm -hmm. probably seen Doctor Strange Love, right? Yeah, we watched we that together. Watched that. Yep, we did. That one was interesting. That might be my favorite. I remember you really liking it, so that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I I find it very funny. <laughs> um, so I've seen everything from Kubrick, with the exception of his first movie was kind of like a student film kind of thing called Fear and Desire. I don't know if he, that he was actually a student or just like he had just graduated, but he kind of hated that one. He like he, he didn't allow it to be re-released during his lifetime. Hmm. Um, so, but I'm kind of interested. I'll check it out eventually. I think it's on Netflix right now, so I have no excuse. Uh, and then he, I think his third film was called killer's kiss i think it's about boxing and i haven't seen that but everything else that he did i i've seen i'm a big fan you'll just watch anything won't you hmm well i think kubrick is is a one of the great genius directors of all time still it's not controversial i but... feel like all the time you're telling me like right now i'm watching and i'm like dear god why <laughs> yeah no i mean i when I see something that interests me, I put it on my Netflix queue. So within a few years, I'll have seen it. Well, maybe not a few. Within like five to ten years, it'll come up and I'll, I'll watch it. And by the time it comes up, I've forgotten why I put it on the queue. So Five to ten years. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 that just broke my brain. <laughs> what like the Like I hell? just watched a movie that I was like, why, why did I put this on in the first place? Like, I, I had no idea. Um, so it's, it's kind of neat. It's kind of like having, I don't know, like a random, there's a random element to it, or like having someone recommend things to you. So I can uh, kind of Even relate. though it's myself, but it's myself from years ago, so I've forgotten why I thought this would be a good thing to watch. I have kind of a similar situation with my Netflix queue. Um, I made my list when I was a little drunk. So, and like That's put like a lot of movies on there. And so they come in the mail and I'm like, oh, 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 okay. Like it's a musical starring Esther Williams. Um, That's pretty neat, I guess. Like, I, I, I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah. Same kind of. So, yeah. So the same. And we both are among the like several hundreds of people who still use the mail I, yeah, I saw Netflix. a post on Facebook the other day that was like, you kids, it, it's like a meme going around. It's like, you kids today don't remember when you had to get your Netflix in the mail. I'm like, I, it, it happened yesterday. Like, it, there's, yeah. we, we're still here. Yeah, okay? no, it still, it still exists. We're and it's still better than it. streaming. It's like, uh, fight me. I, <laughs> it, it's better. Like, if you look through my queue, my queue has hundreds of films, and there's maybe like five or ten of them that you can get on streaming on either Netflix or because the Amazon. Because quality's or... better. 
no like those films just the the movies i want to watch just they aren't streaming oh yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, i'm That's, sure if yeah. you if you subscribe to some specialist thing like a special there's one for classic movies there's one for horror movies shutter you know, but i'm not gonna subscribe movies? to like 50 different streaming services yeah there's one um i think the criterion collection has a streaming service okay well i need to look into that because i have been complaining all of the place that it doesn't exist so if it actually exists i've been making a fool of myself um what is it called I don't it's know, like, but that's why I have a Netflix DVD subscription so I can watch classic films. Mm-hmm. And even their collection isn't that great. Yeah. Well, it's it's progressively getting worse, I think, because, you know, they're taking them off, no one wants them. Well, you know, DVDs aren't coming out as much, and so, you know, inevitably people break the discs or they get scratched and so mm-hmm. their stock is just going down and down unless the movie gets you know you know for anything that's out of print and then eventually they don't have any more so any kind of movie that's out of print on dvd is eventually going to go away mm, god it's horrible and they're not putting things back into print for a lot of things so But, uh, anyway, um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. do you have any opinions about Stanley Kubrick in in general? No. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think, I think he's great. Um, I I find him, I find him kind of, I don't know. There's something strange about him uh, at the choices that he makes. Like he makes very odd choices. It's hard to pin down like what makes a Kubrick film a Kubrick film. Like, there's certain things that he likes. He likes certain kinds of shots. He likes... Of course, this was the movie where he really uses the Steadicam, which was a new invention at the time. Um, he actually hired the inventor of the Steadicam to be to work on the film. Uh, and uh, so do you know what that is? Nope. So basically, um, when you've got... A camera shot in a movie the camera can be locked down meaning it's just sitting in one place and maybe panning left and right or or it can be uh moving and the in the old days the way to have it moving is of course you could have somebody carry the camera but these things are big and bulky and then you're going to get shake you know as the person is carrying it mm-hmm. and, or you can lay down a track and you can have a dolly shot where the camera is like it's like a little choo-choo train on a track and it's going through. But there's a problem because then you've got a track going through your set. So the camera has to be sort of pointing away from that in order to not reveal it. Um, and uh, it's also a lot of work to lay down the track for any, you know, any kind of shot that you want movement. Uh, and so the Steadicam solved that problem because it's this rig that the camera operator wears that basically is um, uh, like a shock absorber thing so that the guy can be walking or running with the camera and the camera won't shake. Uh, so it'll look like this, like a tracking shot, like a, like a, like a dolly shot where the, you've got tracks, but um, there are none. So you can go in a straight line and so forth. And so um, The Shining uses that constantly with all these shots that are tracking Danny as he's on his little tricycle going through the halls and so forth. Um, that was like a new technology at the time. 
And that's the kind of thing that Kubrick likes. The camera is kind of detached and, you, you know, if it was shaking, that gives you a sense that there's someone holding it. It makes it feel more, um, I don't know, like human. But mm-hmm. here the camera perspective is inhuman. It's like hovering over the ground. It's, it's like uh, often at a distance from the characters. It's highlighting just how huge this environment is compared to the puny humans uh that are its victims Mm -hmm. um so that's the kind of thing that characterizes kubrick's style in general i would say you know like like we're talking about like long slow shots um very sort of objective uh perspectives on the action and um i don't know there's there's a million things you could talk about but uh there's also just he he makes like strange choices and and to me, The Shining is just a very strange film. I never quite know what to make of it. I, I love the film, but uh, there's, I don't know, it's an enigma to me. Okay. That's interesting. Um, and because it's strange in a lot of ways, it's attracted a lot of um, crackpot theories. Mm-hmm. There's actually a whole movie about them, a documentary called Room 237. Uh, where it's just a bunch of interviews with various people. I think a few of them are, you know, have all their marbles, but most of them are people who, you know, think that Kubrick was involved in faking the moon landing and that there are clues to that throughout The Shining, or they, you know, think that if you play the film backward along with uh, the Pink Floyd album, then some meaning, you know, it's it's like nonsense theories. Hmm. So I wonder, I don't know, are you aware of any of that? Um, I know a little bit about the moon landing thing, not a whole lot. Uh, something about, like, you know, the, the flag is blowing in the wind and there's no wind in space and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know why they think specifically Stanley Kubrick was involved. Um, yeah, I don't know the details of that theory. I don't really either. I haven't... I, if if it's possible for me to avoid conspiracy theories, I try to, because mm, you know I'll I'll latch onto it real hard, and then now I'm that crackpot. So yeah, you know if I can avoid like if I can, I have trouble avoiding conspiracy theories because I'm also fascinated by them and I believe a lot of them, which you're aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I assume that if you gave me like. 45 minutes and YouTube, I'd be a believer as well. So, yeah. Let's just not. Yeah. Really, the only thing I know about that theory with regard to The Shining is I know it, it has to do with um, one of the sweaters that Danny has. One of his sweaters has a like a rocket that says Apollo on it. That's mm-hmm. like a design that's stitched into the sweater. So that's, I, I guess, supposedly a clue that Kubrick left because he's, you know, he's not allowed to tell what he did but you know for for the really smart people watching the movie they can figure it out but yeah i mean i think there are genuinely things about the film that are are puzzling and that once you start looking at it really closely you notice are weird and to to a certain extent that's true with any film like there are continuity errors in every movie ever made uh but in the shining there are some that just they seem very intentional and especially when you know that with Kubrick's directing style, like what—that's well, another thing that's famous about this movie—is the number of takes that he would do per shot. 
Um, this movie took, I think, over a year to shoot, which is an incredibly long time it for is? a movie. Yeah, usually a movie's made in like a month. Um, oh, in terms of what? the actual shooting, right? Like really? you have Did... pre-production that goes on for years, and then you have post-production that goes on for you know a year or two after the the shooting ends. Oh, but I the see. actual shooting, you know, when you've got all the actors and the crew and everything, it's incredibly expensive to to be paying everybody. So mm-hmm. they usually uh, limit that time as much as possible. Uh, but Kubrick, he produced this film as well as directing and co-writing it. And so he didn't have to answer to financiers who would say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> and so, and he's a perfectionist. So he would do upwards of a hundred takes of a lot of these shots. Like they oh would God. spend all day on a single shot, just doing it over and over and over until the actors were just exhausted. And uh, Shelley Duvall, like, uh, almost lost her mind on this because in, in addition to the the grueling uh, shooting of the same thing over and over and over uh, she also her character is like in hysterics for much of the film so mm-hmm. she's having to keep herself in that emotional state and then on top of that Kubrick was a dick to her like he was deliberately cruel to her in order to like get a better performance out of her or something yeah so, I read that yeah. I read that they had to like follow her around with water bottles because she was like exuding too much water from like screaming and crying <laughs> so much that they afraid she was going to get dehydrated. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think I agree with that, but it, it's a great performance that came out of it. But um, anyway, so once you know like his extreme perfectionism, the degree to which he was involved in every aspect of the production and, and, really uh knew everything backwards and forwards and and everything was deliberate then you start to see these supposed errors and it's like okay there's got to be some deeper meaning to this the one that gets me is is right in the very opening of the film one of the first things that happens is we see the interview with uh uh, jack nicholson where he comes in and he interviews with uh, ullman the guy who hires him to be the caretaker. And we see him enter the lobby from the outside. And then the camera pans, I think, to the left. And we see him walk into uh, Ullman's office. And you can clearly see as the shot pans that Ullman's office is not up against any of the four walls of the structure it's inside that it has a hallway on the other side of the wall and yet when he goes into Ullman's office right right behind Ullman is this giant window that you can see the outside through Mm. so and it's it's all the him walking in is and into the office and everything it's all one shot so it's clear that they built that's that that much of the hotel in the set and so they must have known that 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 uh, window could not logically exist there. Um, so I think, and there are a lot of things about that, about sort of the geography of the hotel that don't make sense. Um, and I I I think that's part of. I think that must be intentional. At least some of these things must be intentional. Um, and they go along with other things that we'll talk about with the plot that don't really make sense. Um, and I think it just, it kind of gives you this like Alice in Wonderland kind of vibe, even if you don't consciously recognize it, you know, it's like, 
that sh- the Overlook is a place where things don't quite add up. Uh, things don't really make mm-hmm. sense in there. There are these little gaps in the narrative and in the in the space of the Overlook that are inexplicable. One thing people always talk about with The Shining is the differences from the novel. Stephen King famously gave the film a bad review, I guess, for for decades. He said he didn't like the film. And I guess he eventually came around because, like, well, I guess there's just only so long that you can continually field questions about this in in every interview and have to defend, like, the worst take in the world. (laughs) Yeah. Until you finally sort of give in to the pressure of just, you know, admit that you're wrong. But I, I definitely can see why King would not like this adaptation of his novel because the differences are so striking. Yeah. Yeah, I said I said the same thing, you know, because we covered this on my other podcast, Hauntings and Homicide, where we talked oh, about... Oh, yeah, we should have mentioned that. This is kind of a crossover even though Selena's not here. <laughs> yeah. So I covered the Stanley Hotel, which is the hotel that the the Overlook is based on. Now, are you sure about that? Because I, I did a little bit of digging, and, I mean, at the end of the film, it says it's events are not based on anything. Well, it's... The events aren't. And the, and the, really. and the location. Um... But well, okay, no, no, here's what, I, here's what I found. I found that I was flipping through my copy of the novel, and in the novel it says, um, at the beginning, uh, the hotel is not based on any existing hotel. It came out of my imagination. What happened was Stephen King and his family stayed at a hotel on the off-season, so it was empty. So hmm. that really happened. Um, but really? Yes. I didn't know that. And he, um, and that sort of like spooky ghost town aspect was like the first part of his inspiration. And then he had a dream about his son going up and down the halls and something about like a hose coming to life and chasing him or something. And, and he, so he had a dream that inspired him. He like woke up and like, his quote is, he, he said um, that he had the dream, he got up and he sat in the chair and like looked out the window and had a cigarette. And by the time the cigarette was done, he had the, com- like, he was completely done with the idea for The Shining. Like it was fully formed in his mind and wrote it. He he came there and he had this idea for writing a book that was set in like an abandoned carnival, like an amusement park. And hmm. then after the hotel, he changed his mind. So I, see. I think he'd already been working on something a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the original thing was going to be called the Dark Shine. Um, something like that. And so mm-hmm. nothing really spooky happened to him at the Stanley Hotel. Um, but he did get the idea there. Yeah. So he didn't see anything like haunt. There was no haunted aspect of his experience so but other people have other people definitely have the stanley hotel they now like rent out that room and call it the stephen king suite um and yeah so uh, there's a lot of haunting aspects to the stanley hotel you have to listen to my episode if you want to hear all about that um yeah so our listeners should check that out it's a super haunted hotel 
Yeah, I'm looking at, I found it on Wikipedia. I'm looking at the outside. It's like a um, colonial style structure. It's very different from the hotel in the film. Yes, it doesn't look anything like that. Although they did use the Stanley Hotel in the movie Dumb and Dumber. Um, <laughs> it has absolutely nothing to do with anything, but <laughs> yeah. There, okay. But in yeah, that uh, Jim Carrey stayed at the Stanley and had a haunted experience. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah, another thing about Stephen King in that time period is that he was kind of a maniac. Oh yeah, right. I mean, he he was an alcoholic, and I think he was doing cocaine too, and so that uh, disrupted his family life like crazy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember reading. And I guess his autobiography was talking about what what changed his what what made him eventually give it up. I don't know if he was on the wagon at the time that he wrote The Shining. Um, he might have been, but uh, it was like his family had a they had like an intervention mm. where they you know how that goes. And and he's um, he, he, me personally. What are you well? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I mean, I don't want. I don't want to explain what an intervention is. Like everyone listening to <laughs> okay. this understands what you know. Everyone sits in the room and whatever. And then, but he said it had no effect on him. Like he just left and was like, "Fuck them," you know. I, now I I'm going to do drugs. more cocaine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then he was just like driving down the road one day, and he just felt like, "Okay, I'm done. Like I don't need to do drugs anymore." And then he didn't. So it was like, you know, in Forrest Gump when he's just running and then eventually he just like stops in the middle of the road. He's like, okay, like I'm done running now. Some people do that. My great aunt did that. She was just like, "Mm, I'm just not going to drink anymore. And she never did ever again. Yeah. I I think that's pretty much how it's gone for Stephen King. I I don't know. I'm I'm not his psychiatrist or anything, you know, but but I don't think he's like had multiple relapses or anything. He kind of had that part of his life where he was a nut and he was on on all kinds of drugs and just misbehaving in all kinds of ways and then he he cleaned up his act I um love and King so much yeah he's a he's a fun guy uh just probably not as, not as fun less anymore so now because he doesn't do as much cocaine right but uh clearly uh jack torrance is based on him right it's yeah. an author insert character he's also an alcoholic who is a writer who is struggling with writer's block and has a family and uh, you know, he's trying to clean up his act for their sake. Mm-hmm. And I think that to me, that's the biggest difference between the book and the film is that in the book, uh, Jack is a, a locus of our sympathy. Uh, we, we are supposed to relate to him even though he, he goes crazy in the end it's really like the hotel has taken over him. Uh, right. I just reread like the final chapters just to refresh my memory and like what happens in the very end when he's chasing, he, he's not chasing them with an ax, actually it's a roke mallet, uh, okay. but which roke is like a, a version of like croquet. So it's basically a croquet mallet oh, that he's okay. chasing them with instead of a, an ax. Mm. But um, there's a part where like, he's chasing Danny and Danny calls out to him and somehow like gets through to like his actual father. And, and for a second, his father is like, is like returned 
and he tells him, run, Danny, run for your life. And then he like, you know, gets taken over again. So it's like a possession thing oh, okay. um, in the end. So even to the very end, there's part of him that's still himself and mm-hmm. and is still like the good father character. Um, whereas in the movie, from the very first scene, Jack Nicholson's performance just uh, radiates this manic energy and this, uh, he seems you know he all of his interactions with his family are like he has this sardonic tone where he clearly does not like them (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean i guess i I don't know it's it's hard for me to even say like and this is something that i think is one of the things that's unnerving about the film is i guess we just don't know what's going on with jack Whereas in the in the book, you know, we have his internal monologue. We know what he's thinking. We get the internal monologue of all three of the characters, uh, and also Dick Halloran. Uh, whereas in the film, uh, we don't have that. And Jack Nicholson's performance, to me, it feels deliberately theatrical. You know, like the first scene we see him in is he's in the interview, uh, and that is a theatrical situation, right? You're presenting yourself to your employer. You want to kind of be friendly and you know almost like exaggeratedly polite and friendly and so forth but then throughout the whole rest of the film it's like no like that's just how he is like he he always uh seems like he's putting on a face uh and we don't know what's really under that mask Mm -hmm. so he's a frightening character i think uh almost from the beginning uh and there doesn't seem to be much of good in him Mm -hmm. yeah he's not he's not really relatable he's not like likable right i mean i kind of i kind of love him but as a villain yeah he's a really good villain yeah and i guess the other thing is i kind of do relate to him as well or i did when i was working on my my (laughs) dissertation okay that i can understand the fucking throwing the ball against the wall and the yeah the empty page and the echo of the keys of the typewriter yes as anyone yeah. anyone who has to write yes can find that mm-hmm. super relatable but that's it yeah and that, and like the way that his wife Wendy is like trying to oh yeah deal with his inability to write like she's trying to encourage him and be nice so she has the best intentions but like uh there's a part where like she she brings him breakfast in bed and she's talking she's like how's your writing going you know and and uh he says something like you know i haven't been able to write yet and she says uh i wrote in this quote it's just a matter of settling back into the habit of writing every day and and he he goes uh yep that's all it is there's <laughs> a smile and it's like you can tell that he's just like hating her in that moment you know like like, like you don't uh, have a fucking idea what you're talking about right and that was condescending and yeah also the part yeah. where she he's clearly writing he's in a he's in a like a groove like all, he's typing away and she comes in and it's like oh what are you doing i'm like oh mm-hmm. 
my god. <laughs> oh no. Of course, later later we find out what he was typing. Yes, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's something very relatable about the way that the film portrays writer's block, and you can definitely feel like that character. Like, you, you can... <clears throat> when you're experiencing that, you do kind of go nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how do you feel about um, the other characters, Wendy and Danny? Um, I like them. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've thought a lot about Shelley Duvall and, and her playing Wendy, and I just... I've come to the conclusion that she's absolutely fucking perfect. Yeah. Like, that was amazing. She's one of the best actors for horror i think because in terms of the way her yeah. face registers fear mm-hmm. like in order to be scared in a movie we need to be scared like through a character being scared right it's the character's reaction to what's happening that scares us really mm-hmm. uh it's not the scary monster itself and you know when she is like in the in the bathroom and and jack is crashing through the door with the axe and she's just sitting curled up screaming like she has like the biggest eyes in the mm-hmm. world and and mm-hmm. she's like yeah she's she's got the perfect face for that mm-hmm. and that kid that plays danny is amazing too yeah and then he went on to not being anything he he i think he's a school teacher wow i meant to he look him up and i never did so that's interesting with uh danny and wendy we understand like what is going on with them mentally uh even though we don't have their interior monologue so i think that you know that shows that it's not like an accident that we don't have any insight into jack really it's intentional he's become the monster um so that's one difference from the novel there's a bunch of others that i don't think are as important like people always talk about the topiary animals in the in the book Mm -hmm. so the book doesn't have a hedge maze instead it has these um animals that are i don't know what you'd say pruned out of the bushes and uh they come to life and menace the characters they have a they're pretty prominent in the book Mm -hmm. but it's kind of obvious that in 1980 you couldn't do that that would have looked so stupid if they'd even tried so yeah they would have had to been like puppets or like and, stop motion animation or some nonsense. Right. Would have been bad. Yeah, and and the maze is like so much better because it becomes this overriding like motif throughout the film, right? Like the overlook is itself a giant labyrinth. Mm-hmm. It's this confusing space like we were talking about that you can wander around in forever and get lost. And then the maze outside is like where the final confrontation happens between Jan- uh, Danny and and Jack. Um and so, you know, the whole, the movie is about really like this kind of uh, psychological maze that is the family dynamic between these three characters and how Danny and Wendy can find their way out of it. But I guess both of the things we've been talking about are related to um, another thing that we should talk about, which is the different cuts of the film. Hmm. Because there's a lot more of the stuff with Halloran in the longer cut, and there's also a lot more about Jack's alcoholism. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jack's alcoholism is really not in the shorter version of the really? movie. Yeah. So, so for our listeners, 
uh, the film kind of has three three cuts. It really has two. Uh, so when it was originally released, the ending was different. Uh, there was a longer ending. Uh, so it came out in the U.S. first, and then later in Europe. And when it first came out, there was um, there were a few minutes added onto the end from what you can see now. Uh, so after Jack chases Danny through the maze and then he uh, freezes to death um, in the original version of the film uh, the we cut to after Danny and Wendy escape on the snowcat uh, we cut to them in with like the police I guess they're in the police department or something like that the hospital and we see that they have gotten to safety and the cops are telling them that they've checked out the hotel and they didn't see any of the ghosts or anything that they said was there and neither did they find jack so they looked through the maze and he wasn't in there mm -hmm. and then we cut to a shot uh you know one of those steady cam tracking shots that's going through the hotel and it's completely abandoned uh and eventually the the camera turns the corner and there's the wall with all the um uh, photographs on it and it zooms in slowly and we see the photograph of the 4th of July ball with uh from the night from 1921 and we see that in the center of the photograph there's Jack Nicholson mm -hmm. so all of that was cut and instead we just cut from uh uh Jack Nicholson's frozen visage to the the photograph of 1921 and that was cut only a few days after the film was released, Kubrick thought better of that ending and cut it out. And then he directed all of the projectionists who had cut, uh, copies of the film already to cut it out too. Oh boy. Um, so that version of the film was only seen by, you know, the people who saw the film during the first few days that it came out. So now you have the U.S. version that's about two hours and twenty minutes long, just missing that little bit at the end. Uh, and, but, uh, initially critics and audiences did not like The Shining. It did poorly at the box office and it got bad reviews. Hmm. Um, so when it came out in Europe a few months later, Kubrick recut it to try to have it perform better. Uh, and in doing so, he cut out about 20 minutes from the film. Okay. And so that's the European cut of the film. So I, as an American, had always seen the U.S., cut of the film but this time i watched the european cut the shorter one mm -hmm. which i don't think you've ever seen no nope. other unless Probably did not. you watch it on streaming this time i watched it i i rented it from amazon oh okay because it's i think it's on netflix but no, it's, it's the shorter version on netflix they or took, there was they took it point. down yeah oh, okay um so anyway there are differences between the films, the different versions, and, and people will swear by one version or the other. I've seen in a lot of like forums online where people are saying the European cut is way better, the American one's too long, but then there's other people saying the American one is better, and it, it usually comes down to like which one you grew up with. But uh, I guess I'll, I have to be a stereotypical American because I think the American cut is better, the longer cut, um, and some of the things that are cut out are are pretty shocking. Um, and they add to the difference between the film and the novel because there's a scene very early on in the film where um, Wendy is talking to 
who is it? Is it a doctor who's come in to look at Danny, or is oh. it like a social worker? She's a doctor. She's a doctor. Okay. So she's talking to her, and she tells about how one time Jack hurt Danny. He pulled his shoulder mm-hmm. out uh, because he, he like, jerked him mm-hmm. away from something he was doing and, uh, and hurt his shoulder. And she says that he quit drinking after that. Um, so that establishes that, you know, Jack has a problem with, with booze and that it caused him to hurt his son. Mm-hmm. And then when they're taking the tour of the Overlook, uh, they go by the um, ballroom and Ullman says that there's the alcohol is removed during the winter. And Jack says, well, that's just fine because I don't touch the stuff. So again, that was cut. So really, there's like there's no reference to the fact that he drinks. Um, so and they even I think they also cut out the this the part when he goes to the ballroom and he's talking to um, Lloyd. He's talking to Lloyd, the bartender. Oh. He says he, he does a toast uh, to five months on the wagon and all the irreparable damage it's caused me. <laughs> so uh, that was cut, too, from the, sh- from the shorter version. So there seems to have been a deliberate attempt to cut out any kind of reference to that, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, like, f- it's the central issue of the novel, really, is this character struggling with that. That's what the, the hotel tempts him with to get him to turn evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to totally cut that out is kind of shocking to me. Um, and it, it adds to the sort of, I mean, I don't know. I think on the positive side, you could say it adds to the mysteriousness of, of Jack's turn to evil and, and his psychology. Mm. I think it's necessary. I guess we could talk a little about things that are confusing. Is there anything in the movie that you find strange or confusing? Yeah. <laughs> um, what exactly are they insinuating by like his picture being there like him being in the picture from 1921 why does he know lloyd why does he act like you know he sees lloyd and he's just like like they've been friends forever like this is totally normal he's been there before you know he's talking to someone he knows like mm-hmm. what what are how do you interpret that well and that's another scene that was cut from the shorter version is um when Wendy brings him breakfast in bed, they their conversation goes longer in the longer version of the film. And uh, in that conversation, <clears throat> Jack says that he feels like he's been in the hotel oh, before. And it's yeah. it's way beyond deja vu. Yeah, I remember So that. that's another one of those things. So I guess Stanley Kubrick in an interview was asked about the photograph at the end. Mm-hmm. And he said that it was a sign that Jack had been reincarnated, that okay. he had... Okay. been in the hotel before in a previous life it's... which to me is like the dumbest interpretation <laughs> so i don't <laughs> i don't mm. like that so i like to believe that he was just messing around when he said that because i mean to have someone's previous life be visually identical to me is like back to the future kind of thing you know where you have the same actor play the ancestor mm-hmm. it's just kind of goofy <laughs> like he should look different if it's not him Hmm. so i i prefer the idea that he's been sort of absorbed into the history of the hotel at the end so that's why the body goes missing too although that's not in the you know the cut of the film that 
we watch now. Absorbed into the history. I feel like I sort of understand, but that's... Yeah. It, it's a place where, where time, where you become unstuck in time, to use okay. Kurt Vonnegut's phrase, uh, <laughs> as well as, as sort of stranded in space. You're also kind of, you know, like these scenes from the hotel's past play, but they're sort of, they're not really true to how it was necessarily. Um, like, so near the end of the film, Jack is hanging out with the ghostly bartender Lloyd. And there's like this whole ball going on. This like 1920s ball going on around him with music and, and people. And, and he bumps into the uh, guy who's like a butler who's serving the guests uh, uh, who spills his drinks on him. And then they go into the restroom to clean him up. And it comes out that this guy is named Delbert Grady. Delbert. Delbert Grady, right. So and and this causes Jack to say, "I oh, think I know you. Oh, Didn't you oh murder God. your wife?" Okay, and this kids? scene made me laugh. It's it's a really funny scene. That one's funny. Mm-hmm. And it's because of uh, Jack Nicholson's facial expressions, yes, right? Yes. He he makes the most bizarre facial expressions in this scene. Um, and this is what Kubrick got out of doing hundreds of takes, right? Is uh, the actors, at first, they give like a more normal performance. And then after take after take, they're wondering like, what the hell does he want? You know, like, <laughs> what, what do I do? And so they would give these more and more extreme takes. And then they would start to get tired. And then they would give more subdued takes. And then eventually they would just kind of out of frustration and not knowing what else to do, they would just start doing random stuff. <laughs> like they would just start making weird faces and looking at the camera and just, you know, whatever. And in a lot of times, like those later takes, you know, take 96 would be the one that Kubrick would actually use. So mm-hmm. to a certain extent, I think this performance from Jack Nicholson is really not his performance. You know what I mean? It's like, it's stitched together from, these different takes and it's using the ones that he he would not have chosen to use um where he was kind of just kind of mugging for the camera and acting like a weirdo mm-hmm. um but that's what Kubrick wanted mm-hmm. so um anyway so we've heard from Ullman at the beginning of the film that the previous caretaker murdered his family uh and his name was Grady but Ullman calls him Charles Grady and okay. Charles Grady would not have been the caretaker. I mean, Charles Grady, the caretaker, would not have been this very prim and proper British butler guy who mm-hmm. is serving the guests in 1921. So it seems to me that Grady's identity sort of got sucked into the hotel's past, this sort of uh, party that's always going on where the hotel is reliving its its glory days when the jet set used to go there you know when they had all the best people Mm -hmm. as opposed to now where it's kind of like not as prominent um so the hotel i feel like kind of it sucks people into this this history yeah it's a history of of violence and of luxury okay it's starting to make more sense to me now it's hard for me to figure out what's going on with Jack near the end of the film. Like everything from when 
when Danny enters room 237. To me, it almost seems like that's like a breaking point in the film, right? When he goes into the room that he's not supposed to go into um, because uh, Halloran has warned him in the beginning of the film. Um, well, actually, Danny brings up room 237, right? Because he's, he's got the shining so he can see into Halloran's mind and he can see. He says, you're afraid of room 237, aren't you? What's in room 237? And Halloran just tells him, what does he say? He says, there ain't nothing in room 237, but you ain't got no business in there anyway, so stay out. Mm-hmm. In other Which, words, definitely go in there. It's got a bunch of crazy stuff you have to see. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, yeah. It's like, don't push that button. It's like, well, now, yeah. now I'm going to push it. Yeah, and and... To me, that's one of the moments in which the film kind of alludes to uh, fairy tales. Mm-hmm. So in that same like early part of the movie where they're touring the Overlook, Wendy mentions that uh, they like, oh, this kitchen is so big. I, I feel like I need to leave a trail of breadcrumbs to find my way out. So that's the story of Hansel and Gretel, mm-hmm. where they leave a trail of breadcrumbs to find their way out of the forest. Yeah, um, and then at the, and then at the end of the film, uh, Danny does something similar when he uh, retraces his footprints in order to find his way out of the maze. Uh, his footprints in the snow. Mm, yeah. He like walks backward in the footprints in order to mislead Jack. And then once Jack has gone the wrong way, then he's able to run back, just following his own footprints and and Jack's in order to get out of the maze so there's that sort of like fairy tale thing which is also uh theseus and the minotaur with the the string mm. um if you know that story i don't i mean i probably have heard it but it didn't so stick. there's a minotaur which is a half man half bull i know what a minotaur this... is okay well i'm just covering my bases okay. here uh which is in in crete the island in greece there's the the king uh, Minos, who that's his like son, because I don't know how much detail to go into here, but his wife had a thing for a bull, uh, so uh, she uh, convinced the the genius inventor Daedalus to build her this like bull costume, basically, so that the bull would have sex with her, oh uh, like a big Fucking wooden mythology. bull with a hole in it, basically, um, and uh, so. Uh, she had this son, and the son is half man, half bull, which is a scandal. So uh, Minos hides the son in the in this labyrinth that he has Daedalus construct. It's a labyrinth that's so complex that you can never find your way out once you go in. Um, mm-hmm. But they have to feed the son, so they feed him human victims. Uh, and uh, one of the victims that's chosen is the hero Theseus. And so when he comes to Crete to be fed to the Minotaur, uh, the Minos's daughter, Ariadne, uh, falls in love with him. And so she uh, gives him the advice that he needs, uh, which is to bring a, a spool of thread with him into the maze and, and unspool it as he goes through so that then he can follow his own track in in order to get out. Um, after he's defeated the Minotaur, which he does, so it's a, it's an age-old folktale motif, um, mm-hmm. and and another one I think is the story of uh, Bluebeard. Mm-hmm. 
Do you know that one? I do. I know that one pretty well, actually. Yeah, so that is a, is a thing where, you know, there's one room that you're not supposed to go into. Mm-hmm. But you're not told what is in there that you're not supposed to see, so of course you have to go in. Right. So, anyway, so Danny, once he does go in, it almost seems to me like the, the logic of the story kind of, like, breaks down. He enters the room, then we cut from that, the next thing we see is him coming up to Wendy and Jack, and he's sucking his thumb, and he's got bruises on his neck. We don't see what he actually encountered in the room, um, or how he escaped. Mm -hmm. Uh, We then go from Jack talking to Lloyd, um, which... Like you said, like he strangely is unsurprised to see Lloyd in the bar. He acts like it's just a totally normal event. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then he's talking to him, and then we see Wendy run in uh, to tell him that uh, there's someone else in the hotel with them because Danny has told her that it wasn't Jack who strangled him; it was the woman in two three seven. And when Wendy runs up. Uh, Jack is just sitting there looking at nothing, and but yet he reacts with total disbelief to the idea that someone else could be in the hotel. Mm-hmm. He says, are you out of your fucking mind? Um, and it's like he's just been talking to someone that he seems to think is in the hotel. Mm-hmm. So, like, what? Like, there's this sort of discontinuity in his, in his character that, that is hard to understand. Um, and then when Jack goes into the room 237... He encounters the the nude woman, who embraces him and then turns into the the rotting corpse of the old crone, uh, and he he is he flees from the hotel room and he's clearly horrified. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, when the next thing we see is him arrive in the uh, Torrance's living quarters and he tells Wendy that there was no one in the room and there's nothing wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's like, what happened in between there to completely change his attitude? It's a good point. I have no idea. I guess it's showing you that he is kind of in and out of, like, being cognitive to the hotel's shenanigans and also not. Yeah. Which is, like, are they trying to say, are they trying to point out that he's, like, lost his mind? Or he's I, I mean, losing yeah. his grip on reality. Like, he's just kind of in and out of sanity. I think that once he goes into the room, I think af- after that point, he's almost not... Like, there's nobody there, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, that's... I I don't know. It's it's one of those things where it's hard not to bring the, the book into it, right? Because another thing that's strange about the movie to me that isn't about the book is the movie, I think, is guilty of the dreaded double mumbo jumbo Mm. that we've discussed right Mm -hmm. so we've talked about double mumbo jumbo where you don't want to have two like different supernatural things going on in your movie or two like just weird things you because then you start to lose the audience and in the movie what was strange about it to me before I read the book is you've got this haunted hotel that's like you know the most haunted space in the universe right it's like the, the craziest shit goes on there um and then you have danny his ability of the shining 
mm-hmm. is psychic the psychic kid and it's like those two things never clearly relate to each other in the film it's just like there's a haunted hotel and also there's a kid with psychic powers whereas in the book they are related um the reason that the hotel goes so apeshit when the torrances are staying there is because uh it's sort of powered by danny's psychic energy um it's feeding off of him and it wants to to capture him it wants him to stay there forever Mm. Um, and that's why it possesses uh, his father to try to kill him is so that it can sort of take his essence and and have him be you know powering it forever Um, so that makes a lot more sense to me so if some different family had stayed there that might not have happened you know they wouldn't be seeing all the crazy stuff that the Torrances see I mean I, I made that connection yeah, and I think you can kind of make that connection in yeah. the film. On this reading, when he enters room 237, that's the moment where the hotel, like, fully takes him over. Um, when he's in there, we get, like, a, on the on the soundtrack, there's, like, a, a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. Like, boom, 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 boom. And, and to me, the way I interpret that is that 237 is, like, the heart of the hotel. That is the 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 place where you really encounter the entity directly not its effects but like the actual like mind behind these various things that happen which i which is something that's not immediately apparent right like that this isn't just a space that is haunted like there are ghosts various ghosts of people who've died there but it's actually everything that happens in the hotel is sort of organized by this malevolent entity that has a uh this is what I think, right? That that it sort of uh, emanates out of 237. And then again, when, I think we hear the heartbeat again when, um, yeah, when Wendy is saying that Danny needs to go to the hospital and Jack says, no, he, she, he can't be taken from the hotel. Mm-hmm. I think, so that's a clue that, that's not really Jack saying that, that's the hotel saying, I want Danny to stay forever. Creepy. So I guess that's the sense that I make out of that. But I think it, yeah, like we were talking about, it sort of deliberately doesn't fully make sense. Uh, I guess we should talk about some of the, the themes of the movie. People have talked about this a lot. One thing people talk a lot about is like the connections to Native Americans. Mm-hmm. So we're told early on that the place was built on a Indian burial ground. and. I need to look and see because I've I've heard conflicting things about whether that's in the book or not, and it's been so long that I don't remember whether that's mentioned in the book or whether it was added to the film. But I certainly, feel like it's in the book. Okay. But certainly, the film, you know, continually returns to that idea through the set design. There are like these Native American designs all over the place in the Overlook that we kind of keep seeing. Um, and then there's when Jack Nicholson is at the bar with Lloyd, um, he's he's drinking his whiskey and he says, white man's burden, Lloyd, white man's burden. And it's kind of inexplicable. Like, what does he mean by that exactly? Um, I thought he meant like (laughs) only white people are alcoholics. (laughs) Right. Which is clearly not true. It's not true, but. And, and the stereotype is that that Native Americans are alcoholic, right? Like fire water and all that, right? Like oh. the idea is that that was part of how they were subdued is that they got addicted to drink, um, which d- came with the Europeans. You know, they didn't have that. 
Um, but so, yeah, I don't know in what sense alcohol is like a white man's burden. Um, but that phrase comes from a Rudyard Kipling poem uh, in praise of colonialism. So the poem says, take up the white man's burden uh, in the sense of like, go and civilize the, the more primitive people in the world and show them the, the, you know, the light of Christianity and all that. Ew. So that definitely connects to the, the Native American sort of thing that the overlook is like, it's a space that embodies the history of colonization and the uh, oppression of Native Americans and, and the, their genocide. Well, hasn't Stephen King like written about Native American burial grounds like several times? Yeah. So there's there's that. To me, that kind of, in my mind, kind of gets rolled in with the issues of like class and like the patriarchal family. Um, as I don't know, I, I kind of read the film as like a commentary on like American values and like the American dream which involves suppressing other races um, not just Native Americans but also blacks which uh, Dick Halloran the cook is black and uh, uh, Delbert Grady refers to him using a oh, not nice yeah. word uh, and then Jack ends up killing him so his doing the overlooks bidding involves murdering this this black guy sort of repeating this this history of racial violence in america um and it seems to me like the the hotel tempts jack not just with booze but with the promise of moving up in terms of social status and economic status like he the torrances are a very like blue collar family Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously Jack has aspirations to something else. He's, he's a writer, he's educated. And, um, when, when Wendy tells him that they should leave, he says like, well, what do you want me to do? Uh, shovel, uh, shovel the walk and work at a car wash. So that's like, what's waiting for him in the outside world is this like life of drudgery and manual labor. Um, whereas when he goes and hangs out with Lloyd and, and Grady, he's with the best people, right? He's like in this world of high society and these like richy rich people, which he seems like he's, he's mocking them, right? Like when he's, he refers to Grady as Jeevesy and uh, he says like, oh, I'm saving my other outfit for the fish and goose soiree later. Like he, he just like invents these like, you know, funny hoity-toity things that he imagines go on in the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it seems like he wants to be one of them. You know, the way that Grady convinces him to murder his family, like, it involves also, like, a, a, a challenge to his manhood, right? When he says, he explains how he killed his family. He says that, you know, the children were trying to burn down the hotel, and so I corrected them. Yeah. And when their mother intervened, I corrected her. Uh, so his, you know, uh, insane homicidal violence against his family is spoken of as if he's just doing his fatherly duty 
to you know like leave it to beaver you know he's like fulfilling that that role of the father who knows best and who corrects his his family members when they do wrong mm-hmm. and so i don't know I, I definitely think that's like a, th- a running theme in the movie is that jack is not happy with his his family and the way that they relate to him and he's also not happy with his socioeconomic status and so the hotel sort of positions what it wants him to do as the solution to that um and in so doing jack is sort of he's pursuing a a nightmare version of the american dream okay there's also like u.s flags all over the place in the movie like the the hotel is full of all kinds of like visual references to that Mm. american flags and stuff and then of course like that makes sense of the end too right like where he's He's made it. Like he's one of the best people in the in the photograph. Yay. Uh, he's like wearing a tuxedo and stuff. It's like he's achieved the American dream. What's interesting to me though is like the American dream seems really British. Like Delbert Grady has like this very bizarre accent. Yeah, he's got like the he's he trills his Rs and like he's got like it, the most posh English accent you could have. Mm-hmm. Um which being being American kind of involves snubbing your nose at at that kind of British affectation, right? Um, and being like, you know, we work the land over here, you know, like we're <laughs> we're hardworking people and not you fancy pants aristocrats, you know, like we don't we don't have a class structure like that in America. We tell ourselves. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting that, and also you know like. The butler figure that Grady represents is a sort of uh, weird, he occupies a weird position because he is a servant, right? So he is sort of lower class in that sense, but he has the manners of the upper class. He's sort of like the in-between, he's in-between upstairs and downstairs or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so you'd think that that's, that would be not part of the American dream. We don't want to become a butler like Grady. We don't want to be the people, you know, the bootlickers who serve the upper class. We want to be the richy rich people ourselves. Yeah. Totally. But Grady positions himself as one of those people, right? He says he talks when when Jack gets locked in the freezer, he's like, uh uh many of us have our doubts about your commitment to this enterprise. So he's like speaking as if he and the other you know, entities in the hotel are sort of on the same social level. They're the the best people. They're the people who are are, um, you know, looking down on Jack and judging him. Right. So I don't know. I, I don't entirely know what to make of that. If we're thinking about the film in terms of like an American identity, why is this figure uh, so like emphatically British? I couldn't tell you. <laughs> I didn't do it. Hmm. Another thing that I feel like we have to bring up at some point is like Mm-mm. the furry blowjob oh. that's going on that yeah. Wendy walks by that's in like just briefly we see a guy lying on a bed and another guy bent over him who's wearing I don't even know. What, what how would you describe the costume that he has? He's wearing a fucking furry suit. Yeah, He's but it's a like furry. Yeah. I guess it's like a bear costume but like sure. the mask doesn't really look like a bear 
That's it's, the scariest thing in this entire film. It's very creepy. Furries terrify me. Mm. I like how it's like, dark things happen here. Furry things. Like, no, please. Not that. Right, yeah. It's like, it's it's a moment that should be comic. They're also, but... like, pretty mad that you're, like, breaking up their... It's like, <laughs> we're two consenting adults. Can we fucking help you? Yeah, exactly. Like, I... <laughs> It's 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 strange that that is is framed as something that's terrifying. Well, it is. But it yeah it is it, it is just because it's so uh, unexpected. Weird, yeah. It's like wait what? Furry ghosts. Yep, it's a thing yeah. I guess. Oh god, that's like the that's my worst nightmare. That is it. That's my worst fucking nightmare. Furry ghosts. Hmm. Ugh. So I I I mean I guess. The easiest interpretation of that is just like it's we're supposed to find it disturbing because that kind of sexual act is unnatural and right. you know, uh wrong. And so that's another one of the wrong things that's happened in the Overlook's history that mm-hmm. we're seeing glimpses of along with the guy whose head is like split mm-hmm. um and, and stuff like that. But I don't know. I feel like I want to I want to pull something else out of that. Like what? <laughs> I don't know. Something to do with like Are you trying to find some deep meaning to the furry blowjob? I I yeah. I oh, want to. Like the the bear is a metaphor for this Greek mythological story where blank well, and blank. The, I mean the minotaur is half human and half animal, right? Um, yeah. He was produced by a, f- a sex act between a person and an animal. Yeah, because so... that lady was a fucking furry. <laughs> she put on a fursuit. Yeah, she put on a costume. There you go. Like, that guy put on a costume. I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I guess, like, the, the basic interpretation is just kind of, like, unfortunate. Like, you know, that's not great that the film is positioning that uh, that scene has been like satirized so many times yeah it's an iconic moment yeah, yeah. it's been in like so many things they've parodied it's in, it is, it's in cabin fever right i think there's there's definitely an, uh, an homage to that in cabin fever i don't know it's been a hundred years <laughs> so we should talk about the score of course it's pretty awesome mm-hmm. do you have an opinion yeah i thought it was really good it's really um it really adds to the to the effect of everything it's it's very unique too because it's got those like ringing sounds that's that sounds like tinnitus or something and it's like Mm, yeah really unnerving and and it's it's one of those things where it like really subtly puts you off you know you're like Mm -hmm. um What's the word I'm looking for? You you feel unsettled and and there's not really anything really unsettling happening on the screen. You're just like, uh, it 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 puts yeah, you totally. in the, yeah, it puts you in that mood before something even happens, and you're just like, I don't like this. Yeah, I I, I love how the how the, the music is like disconnected from the events. Mm-hmm. Like there'll be a scene where characters are just talking, and it's not really that scary, 
but the music kind of yes. builds to this like horrifying crescendo and then there's this crash of the symbols and it all we see is like the uh, the title card that says tuesday yeah exactly <laughs> like, and you're like oh no i've never been so scared of tuesday before <laughs> yep i i also love the the part like when when shit really goes down and it's really scary there's like this these like percussion instrument i don't even know what it is but it's like maracas kind of like it's like this it sounds like there's like dried out beans rattling through something and it's like mm-hmm. you know what i'm talking about mm-hmm. um i would play it in the audio except i don't have the score so uh because it's never been really released i think it came out on vinyl right after the movie came out but then it was pulled and it's never been released on like cd or digital download or anything because of rights issues that's a bummer yeah so that sucks because it's it's a great score um those those weird percussion thingies make me think of like native american you know music too which so i i did a little bit of digging to try to find out like what those are and if those are connected to that at all but um i couldn't find anything i'm sorry so I'm sure probably most of our listeners know, and I just was too lazy to dig enough. But, you know, if you do know what those things are, leave a comment on this web zone. You can also follow us on Twitter.com. <laughs> Twitter.com. <laughs> At, what is this? Oh, Twitter.com. Uh-huh. At Cinematicon Pod. That's right. So follow us on there for the spicy memes. <laughs> and uh you know tweet at us what are those maraca things or whatever they are um we want to know i guess that's it for the shining i hope you all go see dr sleep if you're interested in it and maybe we'll see it too and talk about it next time but that's not our next episode i don't even know what and, our next episode is uh you do know but you may have forgotten oh it is going to be we're going to look at the Evil Dead films Oh! so we're actually going to have three episodes where we cover the entire Evil Dead franchise nice I'm excited so that'll be fun Evil Dead is my favorite movie I know you are a big fan of the the show and the movies as well mm-hmm. so yeah well, next time the original The Evil Dead from 1981 join us Goodbye.